The talk tonight is about opening and understanding. Or, why are we not more happy? (laughs) The spiritual goal, the deepest goal, is often for us the goal of freedom or happiness or peace. These may seem at times like esoteric or distant or far-off goals. They might seem like an unrealistic desire. If we're reaching for this goal of freedom somewhere out in the future, or if we're trying hard to make it happen, it often gets further and further out of reach it does seem distant and esoteric. Unconditional freedom, metta, unconditional love, are born out of the awareness that we bring to the present moment. If you remember the Prince of the Rabbits in the talk the other night, how much he wanted to leave the planet or had that sense that uh, somehow he was on the wrong planet, the the freedom that we're talking about in terms of a deep spiritual freedom is born out of our uh, existential existence. It's born out of the relative level of reality. When I was doing a 10-day self-retreat this year in March in New Zealand, out in the bush, Stephen had left me a book of poems by D.H. Lawrence, which I would read sometimes just before I went to sleep. And this poem is called Flowers and Men. Flowers achieve their own floweriness, and it is a miracle. Men don't achieve their own manhood. Alas, oh, alas, alas. All I want of you, men and women, all I want of you is that you shall achieve your own beauty as the flowers do. Oh, leave off saying I want you to be savages. Tell me. Is the gentian savage at the top of its coarse stem? Oh, what in you can answer to this blueness? Oh, what in you can answer to this blueness? Gentians are a flower that I am most familiar with in the Alpine mountains just before the snow line. They're an amazing flower because they grow on that edge right before um, the snow line. And as you go up higher and higher in the mountain, the, the higher you go, the deeper the blue of the gentians. So when you start off, they're kind of pale, but as you get closer to the top of the mountain, they get deeper and deeper blue. They're quite amazing because it feels like uh, as they get closer to the, the blue of the sky that they're so open that they absorb that blueness. 
for me, this is a, a wonderful metaphor of, of that sense of the possibility of us being so open that, 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 we, um, that each moment is so complete that we're just part of everything. There's that deep, deep blueness. There's that deep beauty. There's that deep connection with life, which is total and joyous. So what in us can answer to this blueness? Can you open and achieve this beauty as the flowers do? In Hawaii, there's a word called pua mana. Pua means flower, and mana means spiritual power. Puamana is another kind of metaphor for our hearts opening. It's said in Hawaii that deep inside of a flower is the spiritual essence. And um, in, in Hawaii, flowers are incredibly sacred, very important. This spiritual essence that is deep inside of us is nourishing to us. Puamana means that there's this spiritual essence that pours out to us from the, from the flower, especially with its scent. Spiritual nourishment is deep inside our own flower, our own heart. If you think of how desperately in our life we have searched outside of ourselves for this nourishment, for this beauty, for this wholeness. And it's never totally satisfying. And in a way, it can't be, because this deep spiritual essence has to come from inside of us. When we come on a retreat, one of the beauties of it is that we get to experience this journey, this spiritual journey, of going deep inside. This takes time. There's a sense of um, the deep importance of gentleness in this process. If there's anything else (laughs) that you uh, don't learn in this practice, I think the most important thing to learn is how important uh, relaxation is, how important the gentleness is. If you think of how a flower opens, it just doesn't get ripped open in a mechanical way. And I'll never forget the first time, I think it might have been with a daisy (laughs) when I was a little girl, where I just was so excited and I just kind (laughs) of ripped it open and and the flower died. We tend to have that kind of relationship to our spiritual development. We are in a big hurry. And often we we have those side effects of the feeling of the flower dying. Our hearts and our minds don't deepen unless we're relaxed. There's that sense of 
sinking deeply inside. And this can't happen outside of the present moment. Each moment is very precious. Hopefully we start to develop a relationship to the present moment as sacred and important. When we don't hold on to a past moment, and when we don't hold on to a future moment, then we're actually experiencing life in the present moment. And in that moment, there'll be a sense of renewal. This renewal is so important for us. Basically, each moment is taking birth and dying, is taking birth and dying, taking birth and dying. And renewal is in the present moment. The most amazing thing about Vipassana practice is that it absolutely doesn't matter what we're paying attention to. (laughs) And this is brilliant. You know, it's, it, it amazes me over and over again how it doesn't matter if we're paying attention to, the, to doing the dishes. Um, it's not more important than being with a breath. Or the moment when we start to fall asleep is as important as taking a step. Or the moment when we brush our hair. Or that moment of fear or whatever it is, that all these moments are precious. They're our life. They're equally important. And it's amazing how we can develop all these categories and times when we rush to be mindful somewhere. You know, it's it's extraordinary. Uh, Hurrying through the dishes so that I can do this. You know, what, what is it in our life that we hurry through to get it over with so then I can be mindful? Uh, this is why uh, D.H. Lawrence says that it's that miracle, the miracle of when we can really open to the beauty of being in the present moment. That being in the present moment is nourishing for us. So paying attention to life with mindfulness is this puamana, it's this spiritual nourishment. So awareness itself matters. It's not what we're paying attention to so much that matters. It's this awareness itself, or what Steve talked about last night, sati. Whenever we take a closer look at what's happening, this will bring energy. That being able to be in the present moment and then to maintain it, even if it's for a few seconds, Uh, or if it maybe is a few minutes. Maybe that's the only time in the day it's happened. But when we do that, it's energizing. That energy brings courage. That was what I was talking about last night, that there's this courage, and from that courage there'll be an interest in life. And the interest hopefully just isn't in what's pleasant. So we might be extraordinarily interested in the sunrise, but maybe not so interested in anger. But what's being said in this practice is that the anger is as important as the sunrise. 
not less important, not more important, but as important because that's life, that's our life, and that's precious. When the interest in life comes, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, um, it makes life workable. The interest and the patience Patience is a real important aspect, allows us to open to life. It's amazing when we start to get this perspective that our own life itself becomes nourishing. We don't have to feel like we're on the wrong planet because we're getting fed by the truth, by life, the truth of life. So we're not having to look outside of ourselves for any fulfillment. The more we stay in the present moment, the more there is that sense of, or taste, or flavor of fulfillment. The Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness, which I'll just go over briefly, because I'm trying to get across that sense of how broad the practices. It's, it's, it's a, a journey where we're opening more and more and more to whatever happens in life. So the first foundation of mindfulness is being aware of anything to do with a body. And when we start with the sitting practice, we'll start with a breath. Uh, this is not the goal of the practice. Just being with the breath is just such a small part of life. It's something that happens for everybody, uh, but it's not <laughs> in anywhere near inclusive. It's just the beginning. It's a place to begin. And it's sometimes relatively neutral for people, which is important. It's important for the anchor to be neutral. So there's that development of anchoring resting. That whole beginning is the sense of relaxing the mind, stilling the mind, tranquilizing the mind. This is essential because our minds are usually so disturbed and scattered. So there's that focusing. Then some people actually use for their anchor the whole body. It's some, for some people, that's easier. But as you see that eventually we have you open up, usually even the first or second day, to body sensations. Anything, pleasant or unpleasant. The range is extraordinary. Earth, air, fire, water, hardness, softness, burning, warm, cool, cold, pulling, movement pressure, vibrations. It's, it's, uh, the Buddha said that we can see the whole universe in this fathom-long body. When I was listening to Carol talking the other night about that quotation about the galaxies, there are zillions of galaxies in our own body. If we come to understand the body, we come to understand everything. 
Suzuki Roshi said, if you've come to understand a frog, you've understood everything. The Buddha taught the four postures, sitting, standing, lying, walking. The body includes eating, it includes urinating, it includes uh, brushing teeth, it includes talking. the, The vastness of this foundation of mindfulness is awesome. It's any time you're aware of something happening with the body, whether it's very microscopic, which we're tending to emphasize some here, that very um, detailed, very uh, inside, close look at, at moment to moment, but inc- it includes the very open awareness. It includes um, the fast walking. It includes everything that you do with the body. So the first foundation of mindfulness is opening to the body and all the aspects, and then developing understanding from that opening. The second is, uh, the second foundation of mindfulness is feelings. This doesn't mean emotions, but it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. Basically, uh, we've talked about this some, but with each moment of consciousness, there's either a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. This is something we can't control. Each moment, it's changing. And you know that that time where you might be having a wonderful time (laughs) with something pleasant, and then maybe there's a loud sound that is very unpleasant, you really see how quick it can change. It's amazing how um, it changes. The Buddha taught that the place that we can really become free is in this understanding we can develop from being aware of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Because if we aren't aware of pleasant feelings, we tend to get attached to the object of what's happening, not realizing that the pleasantness is inside. We go after a person that we might think is pleasant, but actually it's that pleasant feeling inside that we're wanting so desperately. Unpleasant is the same. The place where we can get free is being able to notice unpleasant feelings because if we're not aware, we tend to push away the object. We don't want it. Not realizing that the, the problem isn't in the object, but it's that we're not able to open to and accept the unpleasant feeling that's happened with that object. It's all happening inside. Sometimes, for some people, neutral feelings can be the hardest because they're not so intense. Sometimes they are boring. You know, it's not quite horrible enough. (laughs) Or it's not quite good enough. I call these types intensity junkies, which I tend to be one of. (laughs) 
anything but a neutral feeling. (laughs) Some people really enjoy neutral feelings. Then they... uh, They're not intensity junkies. So there's mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feelings, and then the last two are mindfulness of consciousness and mindfulness of the contents of consciousness. Consciousness is uh, being aware of consciousness itself. It's the knowing faculty. It's um, consciousness. We usually know it by how it's colored. So the colors are are the mental factors. So these are um, generosity. Consciousness colored by generosity, or consciousness colored by love, or metta. Consciousness colored by clarity. Consciousness colored by greed or wanting. Consciousness colored by aversion or consciousness colored by delusion. Basically, consciousness is what is experiencing things. So this is another aspect of the universe and life, which is amazing. How does this happen? It's part of the exploration. It's part of what we call I or me. The last foundation of mindfulness is, is the coloring agents themselves. It's the things in life, um, the things themselves. It's hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, thinking. It's our emotions, the hindrances, or it's all the factors of light in the mind all the contents of consciousness. It's, it's the map that the Buddha had was incredibly inclusive. It's not um, a small journey. It's, it's including everything. We're opening to all of life. So it's important to remember that the anchor is just the anchor that helps us rest the mind so that we can explore all of life so that we can begin to open to all of life. Because when we open, there's that possibility of accepting and understanding. There's so many levels to the understanding we can develop. Just before I left Hawaii, I went to hear a Hawaiian man singing and playing Hawaiian songs. It's sort of my way of saying goodbye to Hawaii. I do it every time I leave. I'm starting to do it every time I come. (laughs) It's getting to be a good routine. Uh, And he plays a lot of the old songs written way before my lifetime. And some of the old songs, even though I don't understand a lot of the Hawaiian words, are my favorite. And as I was sitting watching him, I was thinking about uh, how very relaxed and happy he was. And I thought, he must have sang the song (laughs) thousands and thousands of times. You know, he gets a request for it. It's a very popular Hawaiian song. And then I thought, you know, I've heard this song thousands and thousands of times. 
but I just love it. It touches me so deeply. And I was looking at him and thinking, you know, he must bring the sense of renewal to the song every time he sings it. Um, when we bring this renewal to anything, it, the, the, it touches us very deeply because we've connected with it. It's sometimes easier to do with a song, but this is what we're doing in practice. You know, how many times have you gone to be with a breath and gone, oh no, I can't possibly bear to look at another breath. I'm so sick of this, you know. And it's amazing that this thing that just supports our existence, if you didn't have a breath, (laughs) just think how interested you'd get if it... If it didn't happen, you know, it would be like this enormous interest in the breath. Uh, It's just so critical to our well-being. It's extraordinarily critical to our well-being, and yet we can just get, oh, so bored and sick of it. And it's like that with everything, with with the stars or the moon. It's not just deep inside, it's, it's everything, it's outside, it's the way we drive a car or somebody we've known a long time. How easy it is to just get so bored and disconnected. And it's not the outside, it's that inside that isn't alive, that isn't renewing itself. The other night I on my way to sleep. Actually, I was uh, trying to go to sleep. And I just sort of, I don't know, I must have gotten restless, and I kind of got up and I looked out the window, and I saw this meteor coming by. It was just about two nights ago. I've never seen a meteor like this. It was sort of like it was going by right out the window. I even thought of going outside to see if the the, uh, grass had burned. It was so close. And it looked like... uh, Firework, like a combination of a sparkler and fireworks, just as waterfalls of fire. Uh, and it, it was this this moment of, it was just fi- and like my mind just went fire, <laughs> you know. And here we are, surrounded by the sun and stars and this fire. It's so amazing, and yet we get so closed, so uninterested. When we're fully present, there's no sense of anything being tiring or that we're not tired because our life does touch us deeply. We are connected. And this can apply. You know, it's easy to apply it to a meteor. Can you apply it to wanting mind? Mostly when we're on a retreat, we're seeing the wanting mind, or we're seeing aversion over and over and over and over. You know, you might come in the the hall and just, you know, hope, (laughs) hope that you won't be battling with aversion to something. You know, you might come in and you hope that you're not battling with sleepiness. You know, can we keep this relationship up of interest in that which is usually presenting itself we, we need to learn to open to these, um, 
things that the Buddha taught were very present in the human mind. It's very simple, that wanting the pleasure or the not wanting the unpleasantness. And it repeats. It repeats like the breath. It repeats like the sounds. It repeats. Uh, More and more I see how the more we can open to these and accept that they're happening, that it's the beginning of really melting the ice. It's really the beginning of finding the beauty. The only way to work with these is opening to them, unfortunately. I wish I could tell you some other way. Uh, But that's what's happening. It's amazing that sense of joy when we have that acceptance of them. Because they become workable. I've done a lot of practice at IMS, almost most, I mean, almost all of my practice. When I first came here in the fall one year for the three-month retreat, there wasn't so much um, building going on right next to the building like there is now. Uh, but the, the hay fields and the cornfields have always been across the street. In the fall, uh, well, in the spring, as you might have, I don't know if you've been hearing it now, but they usually uh, harrow it, and they put manure on it, and then they plow it, and then they plant the corn. It's incredible. It's just over and over and over again, all that machinery coming by IMS and doing the work. And in the, in the fall, they're harvesting it, and then putting more manure (laughs) on it. And when I first was sitting here, uh, I just really wanted to get away from everything. You know, I wasn't, I thought I was interested in understanding, but I really just wanted to get away from it all. You know, I wanted peace without understanding. (laughs) It was a good try. You know, I thought I could do it. and I remember being in here day after day with that machinery. And I thought if it just went away, you know, I'd start to be able to get some good practice going. And the aversion to it kept building and building and building. Um, I mean, I just looked at so much aversion to those sounds that fall. And I remember the moment where I just had one of the most brilliant ideas this lifetime. I thought, well, maybe, maybe I better try accepting this. <laughs> I mean, and I really put up a good fight. I'm a good fighter. Uh, and it was just this moment of just sort of, well, maybe I'll try that, you know. It was just sort of a new idea. So I just uh, started to bring my attention close to the sound and closer and closer. And then, you know, I'd have a version. I'd try it again and try it again. And there was this moment where my attention connected. There was that moment of connection with it. And it was just sound. There was no me. There was no machinery. It was really just hearing. And it was one of the most transformative moments of my life. The, the opening, you know, what happens if we open is that understanding follows. We don't have to worry so much about the understanding. What we need to work with so much is the opening and the acceptance. And then the understanding that came from that was extraordinary. 
you know, that's what was sort of like, oh, is this what a natsa means? Oh, you know, it's like I'd heard it, but I had no idea what it meant in my experience. Experientially, it meant nothing to me. The things that we're having the most difficulty with on the retreat are what teach us this. You know, we think, you know, what we're having aversion to, like for me, that machinery, I thought that that was what was getting in the way. But that's what taught me to open. That's what taught me how to learn to, to work with aversion. And it's the same with all the things that we're desiring. You know, it's not that... Um, the teaching is in that it teaches us how to learn with the, to work with the wanting mind. And when we actually let go, it's amazing. We have that sense of, oh, here I was wanting a chocolate. You know, we might spend an hour. <laughs> I've actually gotten a few notes even about, I want chocolate, I want chocolate. Uh, and it's like we can spend so much of our life wanting this thing, you know, this little piece of matter. Uh, <laughs> we suffer so much over it. We want that pleasantness. And the moment where we let go, we see we have everything. We feel complete. So that chocolate taught us everything. It taught us what happens when we let go. So that these things that you're struggling with, and I'm sure you've all been struggling with something, uh, maybe it's back pain. Maybe it's not a sound. Maybe it's fear. Uh, If you're growing, something's going on that's difficult for you if you're growing, if you're paying attention. When we have these moments where we do connect with the present moment, it can only happen in a moment, and it's a big accomplishment. Usually when we have this happen, if it's very deep, there'll be tears of joy. And there'll be that feeling of understanding what we're doing here. Oh. This is what being in the present moment is about. You know, there'll be gratitude. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful when we have that happen. I read an article recently by a man, a monk that I really respect a lot. He's a great scholar. And in this article, he was criticizing a lot of the Western teachers in the, um, for just stressing opening to life. He was saying that opening to life is good, but it's not enough. And you know, there were a lot of um, pretty heavy criticisms in the article. And I thought about it a lot because I really respect him a lot. And I, I feel that what he was saying is true that it isn't enough. Um, We really do need to open, and we really need to develop understanding. He was saying that Western teachers don't emphasize the understanding enough. Um, With the development of understanding, there's more and more peace and happiness. There's less and less need to control. And then there's less greed, hatred, and delusion. But in our culture, and a, a lot of cultures in the planet, um, 
if we get this sense of wanting understanding and wanting to get there, when people come to applying that to the moment-a-moment experience, there's just striving. There's just... uh, (laughs) There's this reinforcement of greed and aversion rather than an understanding of it. So mostly what happens in the West is that if we don't emphasize, (laughs) relax, you know, relax, (laughs) just take your time, um, if we get that understanding, and that's why Stephen and I are really trying to teach more metta, because the metta brings a lot of acceptance and allowing. If one gets that part of the practice, and you just pay attention, you, get it, you have to get the relaxation, and then you add paying attention, the understanding will come. It just follows. It's amazing. So both the understanding and the opening are important. So what are the understandings that we can develop? There's two different kind of insights that tend to happen on retreat. There's Vipassana insights and psychological insights. And I think both of them are really important you'll find that you might have the sense of apostate insight is having an insight into impermanence. That's a Nietzsche. And that can happen from actually watching the sunrise and watch it set. You know, there, there's this real understanding of impermanence that you can see in a very broad, open way. And you can also understand impermanence in a very microscopic level. You know, that's why we emphasize what happens to things if you notice them. What happens to the breath if you notice it? What happens to a sound if you notice it? What happens to the pain that we call pain or the pressure if you notice it? What happens to a step? What happens to the rice cake if you notice it? There's a tremendous emphasis on noticing change. Because the truth is, is that things are changing. And they're changing at a rate that is very wild. It's unbelievable. So there's levels to this understanding of, of impermanence. We can, we can have an insight to it again on a very broad level, like watching uh, the peonies. They'll come to flower and pass. We can have an understanding on that level. Or we can have the, the understanding of the birth and death of a moment. The Buddha taught that when we understand impermanence, that we can have an understanding of dukkha. Understanding dukkha means we understand that there's very little control about what's going on. That there's this uncertainty that we never really do know what's going to happen. And we can have so many understandings of that on a retreat. You never know what's going to be served for lunch. That's a pretty broad understanding, um, but it affects people. <laughs> it's the only thing that happens here. People can spend hours thinking about what <laughs> they serve for lunch. It's a big thing. Um. <laughs> so, 
there's very deep levels of understanding, dukkha. So the, the understanding just deepens as we pay attention and open. There's that understanding of anatta, that there's no separate solid self in what we call I or me or mine. Some people, when they hear this, you know, think of it as a kind of horror, you know, that there's this sort of horrible emptiness waiting for us when we understand anatta. Uh, it, it's, sometimes it's called emptiness or selflessness. Uh, what happens is we understand that, that we're not separate. It feels wonderful. We feel totally interconnected when we understand anatta. Um, and there's deeper and deeper levels of that. Wisdom, oh yeah, there's one other kind of insight, which is psychological insight. Sometimes you'll start to see a pattern about yourself, about the fear of rejection. It might be that you understand a pattern about yourself, um, about the fear of anger. Or maybe it's about the fear of death. Now, these psychological insights, they don't happen by figuring it out. If you're sitting there and you're figuring it out in an intellectual way, this isn't the kind of insight that we're talking about. Insight happens like, aha. You know, there's an aha. You haven't figured it out beforehand, whether it's an insight into impermanence, an insight into dukkha, insight into anatta, or a psychological insight. Insight is intuitive. It happens from our um, paying attention to our direct experience. And when it's an aha, you're going to have to reflect upon it a little bit to integrate it. It just doesn't mean that you have an aha and you, you, you don't reflect. But I recommend that if you're reflecting for over 10 minutes, <laughs> it usually means that you're getting a little lost in the content of what's happening. But it does require some reflection. And usually I, I, I look at my watch and I say, OK, five or 10 minutes <laughs> when I'm sitting. And then if I go over it, I really know that I'm getting into figuring things out. Figuring things out is one of the most seductive things on retreat. I call it, I have a label for it, it's figuring it out mind. You know, I, you know when you're spending hours figuring something out on retreat, uh, it's not exactly intuitive insight. Uh, but it's very uh, seductive. You'll find that you do it over and over, and then you'll learn, oh, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. And you start again. So I've talked a lot about, about how opening affects our understanding. I also wanted to talk about how the development of understanding reflects open, re, um, helps us af- open. How does understanding affect our opening? When we open to the pleasant 
or unpleasant or neutral aspects of life again and again to the sunrise, to the flower, to the breath, to the fear, to the aversion, to the wanting. Um, this, this going through it over and over again deepens our understanding. The mindfulness, mindfulness is what protects us, as Steve was talking about last night. It guards the mind. Mindfulness means we're seeing clearly life as it is, moment by moment. If we open to the pleasant without attachment, open to the unpleasant without aversion, that's when the mindfulness is strong. I saw a sign on someone's refrigerator years ago, and it said, don't get so open-minded that your brains fall out. (laughs) Mindfulness is sobering. It's sobering as well as joyous. Um, Mindfulness brings detachment as well as connectedness. Um, If we're opening and we're opening to the pleasurable, that brings happiness if we're mindful. Um, If we open without understanding, we can only open to the pleasant. This is really important. If we can only open to the pleasant, it doesn't mean that there's a lot of understanding developing. And that's one of the dangers of when people get really uh, caught to the bliss of the metta practice. I know some of you had real difficulty shifting from metta to vipassana. I remember when I shifted from metta to vipassana, I felt really like I was going cold turkey. You know, it was just the shift from metta to vipassana was really hard. You know, it was like, oh no, not the present moment. You know, it's not easy to do vipassana. You're really facing life as it is uh, without, you know, we're not playing music, you know, five hours a day. We're not having you dance, you know. We're really having you over and over again look at yourself. (laughs) It's like this is your life. (laughs) It's like the spotlight's on you. No, it's incredible. That's why we call it intensive retreat. (laughs) So if wisdom develops, if understanding develops, then we start to be able to open to more and more of life. Unfortunately, what happens, I've talked about this in the last retreat, that it's just like a flower opening. If we open, we open to the sun, the rain, you know, the stars, the manure. You know, a flower opens, it opens to everything. It's just like us. If our heart opens or our mind opens, we open to the pleasant and unpleasant. We just can't open to the pleasant. We, when we open, life includes the whole show. So this understanding really affects how we open, because if we understand that's how life is, we'll have more courage to open. We'll understand that it includes the pleasant and unpleasant. 
whenever we go to New Zealand to the meditation center there, they don't have electricity. There's a cabin that I stay in there uh, when I go on self-retreat. One of the joys of going there for me is to see how attached I've gotten to light. Um, You know, when we have electricity, we really lose touch with the darkness. And I think that's affected our culture in a very negative way because there's more and more fear of the dark. There's more and more fear of the shadow sides of us uh, in whatever way that works, the fear of anger, the fear of fear, the fear of um, everything hidden and dark. Life is, uh, it includes dark and light. You know, half of, half of a day is really night. If you live in the seasons, you see how long winter really is. You know, there's spring, summer, fall, winter. There's a, that um, really large expanse of light and dark of a, of a year or a season. And it's um, amazing how if we avoid the dark, we often have to avoid death. And if we avoid the darkness and death, we're really avoiding life. It's, you know, again, it's that each moment is taking birth and, and dying. Part of Vipassana is really facing death. It's really facing the birth and death of the moment over and over. It's facing the dark. Uh, it's bringing awareness into these things. It's bringing awareness into the dark. But it's not running from it. I mean, I really did think I could come on retreat um, when I was first starting to practice and really avoid all that. Uh, you know when people, you tell people that you're going on a retreat and they say, have a really good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to go, I'm not going to have a good time. It's going to be really hard. And, you know, you know, it's just they think you're going on a holiday or a vacation, and then you sit there and you're facing knee pain, and you're facing, you know, you're facing a lot of, of, of the dark. And it takes tremendous courage to do that. Unfortunately, like I was saying, if we shut down to the dark, we shut down to death, we shut down to everything. We shut down to the light, we shut down to life. Mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness is recovery. It's a recovery of our moments. It's a recovery of death. It's a recovery of life. It's a recovery of light. It's a recovery of dark. Recovering fear. It's recovering anger. It's just giving us more and more of our life. If we open to that, we develop more and more wisdom and understanding. If we're really opening to everything in life, um, you'll go through changes. Maybe at the beginning of practice, it was difficult for you to open to the breath. If you're new and to work with it, that might be where you are. 
maybe at another point it was a time to start to open to body sensations. Or maybe that took ten years. Maybe that will take ten years if you're new. Maybe it's difficult with sounds. Or maybe sounds are really the only thing you can really open to. But maybe they're a horror show and you can't. Um, And then if you apply this to your life, You know, what is it in your life that it's difficult to open to? This stuff isn't just for the retreat. You know, this is... I remember the time when I was doing walking meditation here in the annex one night, um, and I was about to take a step, and I realized that if I took another step with mindfulness, there was going to be no backing out of the practice. You know, I knew I was into it for my life. And I remember standing there for a long time. <laughs> you know, like, do I really want to do this? You know, this is hard. I know, do. but I remember just saying, okay, you know, once you start doing this, then if you're growing, you'll be applying it places. Uh, maybe you're really good at retreats, but horrible at communication. Not so good with relationship. Maybe you've got the breath down and you've got sounds down, but it's difficult to open to fear. That's where your work is. Or maybe metta is really hard. That's where the practice is. If If you're really wanting to grow. So we're developing opening, we're developing understanding. But hopefully, we're going to be um, having our actions in life reflecting this understanding. If 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 we don't if we don't start changing in an outer way, I really suspect if anybody's really developing understanding, understanding will mean change. It will mean courage. I think it was last year, I decided to uh, place myself in a situation that I knew would be really difficult for me. Uh, I have a terror of uh, being attacked because in my early life there was a lot of physical abuse and violence and sexual abuse. So I decided that um, I wasn't really free around violence. You know, I thought I thought I was for many years. I kept thinking, well, you know, I'm free around violence. I'm very peaceful, um, but I knew deep down that I wasn't. This is an example I'm trying to give you of knowing where your work is. But I knew it would be really hard for me if I faced it. So I I took a course called model mugging. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, for me, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It's a course where um, uh, these, there's there's courses for men or for women, but the first course you're learning to deliver, can't believe I can even say it, a full force knockout blow to an assailant. (laughs) A full force knockout blow to an assailant. And they actually simulated, there's this man who's dressed up and he's patted all over and they come at you street speed and you learn all these different ways of, um, fighting off an attack. Uh, 
And I remember that before I went the first day, I kept saying to Steve, don't you think met is enough? <laughs> I think met I think met is enough. I don't think I have to do this. And I was terrified. You know, uh, and I kept coming up with all these excuses why I shouldn't take model mugging, you know, because I had already overcome the fear, which I hadn't. Uh, and the classes were five-hour classes. Uh, and they, you know, it, it was bringing up much more stuff for me than I could integrate. And it was just bringing up so much terror. So about um, being really honest, <laughs> I'd say 10 minutes into the five hours, I would start looking at the clock. <laughs> and, and I, you know, it was just amazing how slow it went. Uh, and I just stare at the clock a lot. And there was a man who was observing the class who was training to be a mugger. <laughs> in, the, in this uh, positive sense of the word. Uh, and he came up to me, you know, in the middle of the class, and he said, well, how's it going? <laughs> And I said, well, I really watched a lot. I really watched the clock a lot. And he said, oh, don't do that. Stay in the present moment. <laughs> and I said to him, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it came out of my mouth, you know, and I thought, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, and I, ho- I just hoped he never found out what I did for a living, you know. <laughs> and it would be very hard for me to actually see, you know, what I had to do to survive the class. You know, I really did have to look at the clock because there was so much terror coming up. I couldn't open to that much pain coming up at once. Um, but I got through it. It took me about a year to recover. <laughs> it took me about a year to integrate the feelings that came up, the emotions that came up. Um, but I, it, I did it. Uh, if I had done it two years before that, it wouldn't have been the right time. And so I'm just saying these things. It's like wherever you, know, wherever you see that you're not able to open, that's the place to work. And it's not to push it. Uh, there's a wonderful bird that lives in New England called a wood thrush. I don't know if you know it, but it's a very, very sweet, very high sound. Uh, and if I ever have trouble on a retreat, if I have difficulty, often I go out to the backwoods and listen for the wood thrush. It's a very pleasant sound for me, and it's a way to um, balance sometimes when things get difficult. I'm not saying to place yourself in the fire all the time. I'm actually saying whenever you need to learn, like you're doing here, you're learning to anchor the, the attention with the breath. That's learning to rest the mind. It's learning to uh, bring tranquility to the mind. We need to avoid at times. We need to just um, be very quiet and tranquil and not open to pleasant and unpleasant. If we trust that, if we trust that sense of resting the mind, 
then when we're strong enough, we'll open a little. And that's how the practice goes. We rest and rest and rest because that's strengthening. And when we feel strong enough, we open a little more. And then it might get too much, and we back off again, and we curl back up, and then we wait, 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 and then you'll open again. The more you learn to respect that cycle of rest, renewal, opening, exploring, uh, the more you'll trust the practice. You'll trust uh, that the truth itself is what's healing. It's the awareness itself. It's life itself. It's nourishing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.